0: always the danger when Sean's leading uh, music that you get up to preach and your voice is a bit hoarse Um, so thanks thanks to Sean for that there's a beautiful um, sentence in that last song wasn't it what the enemy means for evil you work it for our good can seem like a flippant thing a throwaway thing our God works all things for good and yet it's up there with the most precious promises of the scriptures right so if you're if you're suffering at the moment if you're struggling if you have if you're in sin or you've been sinned against if you're a believer, that's a 100% ironclad promise, isn't it? That God works all things for good. Every single thing in your life, He works for good. And I wonder what kind of people we would be if we could really get a hold of that sentiment. Um, Daniel chapter 9, we're reading from today. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans... In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying... Pray with me. Oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You don't have to actually literally pray with me. It might put me off slightly, but please, in your hearts, in your hearts and in your minds. But I I appreciate the support. And please, please mean this as we pray this because I do believe this is a prayer for the church. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, to our princes and to our fathers, And to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel. Those who are near and those who are far away. In all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed. Your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Now then, O Lord our God, help me here, help me here. Now then, yes, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sin and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now then, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations. And the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not, O my God, for your own sake. Because your city and your people are called by your name. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, And understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations there shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. We have a few moments now to ponder this chapter. And see what its implications might be for us. And as we've been going through this series on Daniel, we've been asking the question of how we, uh, 21st century Tasmanians, can learn from this book set in Babylon uh, and learn how to stand against the tide of our times, right? To stand in faith. In fact, one of the most common questions that we get when we put out the teaching team surveys over the years has been this question. How do you stand... In a culture that is hostile to Christianity, uh, in, a, in, a, in a context in which people don't understand the things of faith anymore, how do we stand? And I think one of the open secrets, uh, if you will, in the book of Daniel, how Daniel managed to stand, and we've seen him stand over and over again, haven't we, in these teachings, is his life of prayer it's a a real constant in Daniel's life we see the young Daniel um, in his late teens or early 20s in chapter 2 and he's facing execution if he can't interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream and his first inclination is uh, firstly to promise that he can do it before he's received any interpretation or any sense of what the dream is and then to turn to his three friends and to say pray for me pray and fast and he receives uh, the interpretation And then in chapter 6, we see a much older Daniel. And actually, chapter 6 was set in the same time period as chapter 9 here. In chapter 6, Darius has made a decree that anyone who prays to another god other than him um, will be thrown into the den of lions. And again, um, Daniel's first inclination is to pray. He goes home. He opens those windows toward Jerusalem and he kneels and prays, as he always did, three times a day. So this is a constant in, da- in Daniel's life. It's something he's actually um, happy to risk his life for. So it's no mere routine, is it? It's no mere religious duty. It's certainly not a chore for Daniel. Prayer for Daniel is actually a vital resource the most precious resource he had. Because as he served under these great kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius and Cyrus, these kings who could do whatever they wanted, right? They held the power of life and death in their hands and before whom these Jewish exiles were nothing. The only way Daniel could stand and not capitulate at every turn to what these kings wanted him to do was to access the king above them all. And prayer was his one line of communication with this king. It was his one line of communication to the real throne of God. We get an insight into the shape of Daniel's prayers in chapter 9. This is the most comprehensive prayer that we get of Daniel's. And I wonder, uh, just at the outset, how often the shape of your prayers is like this. This is one of many examples of prayer in Scripture. It's not the only example. But it is, it is an example and it is a significant one. So I wonder how often your prayers sound like this, look like this. I want to summarise Daniel's approach to prayer in this passage. Maybe this is a line that you can take away. Summarise it like this. Daniel here is taking hold of God for the glory of God. He's taking hold of God. You can see he's really wrestling with God here, isn't he? But he's doing so for the glory of God, for God's reputation, for God's renown. I think we have two impulses when we pray, um, two good and godly impulses. The first is that we want to pray in faith and boldness. We um, we read lots of scriptures about that, that we should expect to receive what we ask for. Because we're praying to our, our Father as his children, we're asking for good gifts. But then we also have an impulse toward humility, don't we? Because we're not simply praying to our Father. We're also praying to our Creator, whose ways are far above our ways, who knows much more than we do. And so we don't assume that everything that we're asking for is actually what we need or what is good for us. And I think both of those are right and both of those are biblical. And yet if you push them to the extreme, they actually start to sound like they're at war with one another. So that you can get those who are of the sort of pray-in-faith school starting to say, well, if you ever pray according to God's will, if you ever pray, Lord, you know this is what I want, but it might not be good for me, that that's actually a sign of cowardice or maybe just a sign of a lack of faith and you shouldn't pray that way. Or then you'll have those from that more, if it is your will kind of school of prayer, looking at the people praying in faith and saying, it's just presumptuous. You're, just, you're claiming things that God doesn't actually want you to have. And so these two camps can be established. But what we see in this prayer in Daniel He's actually a perfect marriage of the two of them, don't we? He is praying boldly. He's praying fervently. He's praying confidently. And yet there's not a shade of presumptuousness to it. There's, there's no shade of claiming something God doesn't want because his prayers here are aligned perfectly with God's own will. I want to um, go through the prayer in, in three sections here, or this chapter in three sections. Um, the preparation... The prayer, and I couldn't get another P for the answer. Is it, anyone know a word, any walking thesauruses here? Answer, conclusion, something starting with P. So what was that? Pinnacle. Pinnacle? It's close, it's close. I'd have to throw out the whole analogy and make it a mountain climbing sort of thing. Um, all right, prayer, preparation, call out something if you, um, if you have it. Okay, firstly, the preparation. We see that the prompt for Daniel's prayer here was his reading of the book of Jeremiah, that um, passage that we had read out from Jeremiah 24. Um, And that tells us two things. It tells us, firstly, that Daniel's prayers were very much constrained by Scripture. Um, I hope that you picked up the threads through all of those readings. Each of those readings informed massively the way Daniel prayed, um, from the law of Moses to the dedication at the temple of solomon whose whose prayer daniel mirrors here um, to that passage in jeremiah john lennox says the conviction that the scriptures are the word of god is still the secret of how to live in babylon without babylon living in you so add that when we talk about how we uh, stand against the tide of our times we said prayer is one vital resource And wouldn't you know it, Bible reading is the other, which forms that great Christian cliche for every question that you ask, how do I do this, how do I improve in this area, read your Bible and pray. And yet it's true, right? It's true for us today with handheld Bibles and Bibles on our phone. It was also true for Daniel in Babylon, literally reading the Bible and prayer. But it it matters immensely how you read the Scriptures, doesn't it? And it matters immensely how you pray. That you're not praying as a rote thing but you're praying actually to the god of heaven actually calling on him to act and you're not reading the bible just because you should or just because you're following a plan but you're reading these scriptures as if they are the true words of god and you're actually acting on what you read and you're actually believing what you read there so it tells us firstly that his prayers were constrained by scripture and secondly it exposes a sort of error of logic that we can be tempted to make when we think about God's sovereignty when we think about God's control over history Um, people can say sometimes look if God if we're sort of living in God's story and God knows the end from the beginning and God has written the final page and God knows where all of this is going and has determined it then why pray it's already set it's all fixed it's all done so why ask God to do anything That may appeal to our earthly logic on some level, but it's not biblical logic, it's not heavenly logic, it's not Daniel's logic. Because you see here, he he read the scroll of Jeremiah and he saw very clearly that 70 years were to elapse before the exiles were to return, before Jerusalem was to be rebuilt. That's in the scroll of Jeremiah, it's not conditional on anything, Uh, He just says, I will do it after 70 years. And yet we see that Daniel doesn't become lazy as a result of that. He doesn't say, well, God's going to do it, so I'll just wait. The time's almost up. He doesn't become resigned to what's going to happen. Actually, it prompts one of the most fervent prayers that we read in all of Scripture. And I want to suggest to you that that is because, precisely because of his certainty of God's sovereignty. That he knows that God can answer this prayer and, in fact, will answer this prayer Now, there are plenty of other promises that we have in Scripture that are just as certain that we should also not be resigned to or be lazy about, but should pray toward. We started this year looking at the book of Acts and we just read through it, didn't we? And you remember the analogy. We were holding it up like a mirror to ourselves. See what that early church was like and to compare ourselves with it. And we saw in that book the powerful works of the Holy Spirit We saw um, the disciples receiving boldness to proclaim the message, having fruitful witness. We saw them uh, with this power from the Holy Spirit and great signs and wonders. And I want to suggest to you that we should not as a church say, okay, well, that's what happened in the first century. um, But God obviously, whatever's happening now is what God wants for us, clearly. We shouldn't say, look, God has promised these things, I know, to the church and so if God's promised them, we'll get them. Or if he hasn't promised them, we won't get them, but whatever happens, happens. Actually, if we want to be like Daniel here, we need to pray the promises of God back to him. We need to remind God of his promises. We need to say to God, like Daniel, open your eyes and see. Incline your ear and hear, see what's going on in your church, see where we're falling short, Lord, and pick up that shortfall. So that's the prompt. And then Daniel actually prepares himself personally for prayer in verse 3. He said, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I think a lot of the teaching around prayer um, that I've sort of imbibed growing up has been a kind of trying to... uh, lessen the strangeness of it so that there can be teaching around look you don't need to wear special things or go to a special place or say special words and these and thou's. you can just pray as you go pray in your car pray while you mop the floor Um, just pray and that's very good um, biblical wisdom, isn't it? Pray without ceasing. Uh, I'm reminded of A.W. Tozer's quote where he says, the most mundane tasks for a Christian can be turned into the most wonderful prayer meetings. And I thought about that as I had overflowed Toby's bath yesterday and was mopping the floor for an hour. Um, but it's, it's very, very true. And yet the Bible also does tell us that we need to prepare for prayer. It doesn't just say you just shoot up a prayer as you're going. I think of um, 1 Peter 4 verse 7. Where Peter says the end of all things is at hand, therefore be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. That is, your prayers will be less effective or you will pray less or you'll pray less fervently if you're not sober-minded and self-controlled. And that means that um, a lack of time is not our main issue when it comes to not praying well. If you don't pray well, it's not because you lack the time. It's because, perhaps, because you're drunk. You're not sober-minded. You're not self-controlled. Perhaps you're, you're indulging in entertainment and it distracts you from the sorrow of the world, from the sorrow of your neighbours around you as the Netflix blares on the screen. Or perhaps you're indulging in leisure and therefore the hope of heaven is dulled because things are so good in the here and now. And so you're not praying toward... Heaven, as Daniel prayed toward Jerusalem. Or maybe you're just sort of experiencing this kind of excessive anxiety and introspection, and always sort of looking to yourself and thinking of yourself, and so the needs of others are not so clear. If we want to be better prayers, like Daniel, we need to fast. And perhaps that looks like uh, not eating food. Um, In fact, that's, of course, what fasting is. Um, I want to suggest to us as well that there are other things that we could fast from, aren't there? Maybe there are periods of time in which you just say, this thing, whatever it is, You know, is. I'm not a person who thinks that um, entertainment is inherently wicked or anything. I think, it's, I think it's fine. It's a gift from God. It's a wonderful thing that we experience. And yet, there are periods and seasons of time. And there are periods in which you just feel like you've been dulled so much to the things of God that perhaps you just need to lay to rest something maybe it's um maybe it's coffee maybe it's entertainment maybe it's the newspaper whatever it is so that's the preparation then the prayer you see here that daniel's prayer is a corporate prayer it's a corporate prayer for the covenant people of god it's a prayer of confession which is um quite startling because daniel was an exemplary character in scripture he's actually one of the few people in scripture who has the distinction of not having had anything negative said about him in all of the pages of scripture that we read about daniel it's all good all the time and yet daniel doesn't pray for his own personal needs amongst you know these wicked israelites who've got him into this mess nor does he pray for those people over there lord let make them repent make them like me But actually, Daniel very readily identifies with the covenant people of God. He actually says, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. Now, we are the covenant people of God, right? Sean uh, um, alluded to that earlier. We're the new covenant people of God, the covenant in Christ's blood. And as the new covenant people of God, we've got to have the same kind of mindset, that we are a people united. We can be tempted at times to talk about the problems of the church out here as if we are some kind of arbiter over here apart from the church. The church really needs to fix this. The church should resolve that. We are the church. You are part of the church. So the church's problems are your problems. Or we can be tempted in our, uh, our church family here to look at other sections of the church. ...and see issues there. It's the Anglicans and their bells and smells, you know. It's the Pentecostals and their smoke machines. It's the Presbyterians and their baby dunking. It's the Charismatics and their craziness. It's the cold, dead Calvinists. That's the problem. But actually, all of us are the church together, aren't we? And so for Daniel, he just says, it's us. That's the problem. It's us. I'm struck then by how the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray in the New Covenant doesn't teach us to pray my father in heaven but our father our father in heaven there is to be this corporate identity in prayer i said it was a prayer of confession that's about three quarters of this prayer is daniel confessing the sins of his people if we want to confess to god rightly in prayer we have to be convinced of two truths Um, firstly of human wickedness and secondly Of God's kindness. We see both of those things held together in this prayer. Look, uh, if you've got it open, Daniel chapter 9, verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, God's kindness, but to us, open shame, human wickedness. Or verse 8. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, but, verse 9, to the Lord our God, belong mercy and forgiveness. Or verse 18, the last part there. We do not present our prayers, our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. If we're not convinced of our own wickedness and sinfulness as human beings, we will come before God not having that much to confess. You know, we'll know that technically we're sinners, technically, and there are a few things here and there that we need to sort of bring before the Lord, but we will not understand actually our fundamental corruption from the fall our fundamental corruption as we naturally stand as human beings but if we if we're not as assured or i would say even more assured of god's kindness we won't risk confessing because then as we come before god confessing our sins we might feel as if actually we're just giving more evidence to the judge to condemn us now the supreme uh, place in which both human wickedness and God's kindness meet is the cross of Christ isn't it we see there human wickedness and depravity because as you behold the slain son on the cross you recognize that actually nothing less uh, could be required to forgive us of our sins actually it took the infinitely precious son of god dying on a cross to forgive you which means you're not a mostly good person with a few sins to forgive here and there with a little bit of guidance required but actually you're you're rebellious against god to use biblical language in in the flesh naturally you're hostile to god the apostle paul says something amazing in romans 7 as a christian as a christian missionary as a christian apostle he says nothing good Dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Which means, naturally speaking, apart from the intervention of God, even now, even right now, there is nothing to commend you to God in your flesh. There is nothing pleasing to God there. Those who are in the flesh, he says, cannot please God. So we're corrupt to the core. But we see also in the cross God's infinite kindness, don't we? And namely, in the fact that he did not spare that precious son of his. He actually gave him up for us all, even when there was nothing to commend you to God, nothing attractive about you, nothing appealing about you at all. No good works. Still, he moved towards you in grace. And so if we want to confess to God, we've got to come to the cross. We've got to see sin abounding, human sin abounding. But we've got to come to the cross and see God's kindness and grace abounding all the more. Thirdly, there's a petition. That's the last quarter of this prayer from verse 16 to 19. And we see by Daniel's expressions here that, again, this is no mere duty that he's performing. He's not simply saying his prayers here. He actually cares very much that he gets what he's asking for. Uh, Calm and emotionless prayer, um, sort of restrained prayer, is not a sign of great um, reverence for God, can actually be a great sign that we don't actually care about what we're asking for, you know? If we can just sit and pray for a couple of minutes, Lord bless them, Lord be with them, go away and kind of forget the requests, that's actually a sign that we're not particularly concerned with what we're asking for. But how does Jesus picture prayer in the New Testament? Think about the kinds of parables he uses. He talks about a widow Uh, who's seeking justice from a wicked judge and she keeps on asking him every day until he gets so annoyed that he answers. Or he talks about a friend who you're you're in bed uh, at night and your friend is starving hungry and he starts banging on the door. He says, go away, I'm asleep, come back another time. But he keeps on banging until you get up and give him the bread. That uh, That kind of prayer without regard for propriety, that's the kind of prayer that God wants from us. Tozer says, um, pray until you pray. Don't pray until you quit. Don't pray until you're tired. He says, pray until you pray. So that um, we are to wait until we're actually asking God. Maybe it takes two minutes until you're actually asking God for something genuine. Or maybe it takes half an hour. He says, maybe the last three minutes of your prayer are more important than the first 40 minutes. Because at that point, you actually get to the point where you're actually asking God for something. And when you ask, Jesus says, you will receive. So he's uh, he's fervent in his prayer, Daniel, but he's not presumptuous, as we said, because he's aligned with God's will. His ultimate prayer here is for nothing less than the glory of God itself. You see, there in verse seventeen. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. Just a small phrase there, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. Or verse nineteen. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God. And even as he prays then for Jerusalem and for the people of Israel, you see that he's not praying for them for their own sake. He's not praying for them simply because he's concerned for them. But far above that is a concern for God's reputation. We see that in verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from the city of Jerusalem, He says, "Because for our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. They're starting to become this sort of, um, this sort of uh, point of derision of their enemies." Or verse uh, verse nineteen. Sorry, verse eight. uh, Yeah, nineteen. Again, he ends the prayer by saying. Your city and your people are called by your name. You see, this is Daniel's overarching concern in his life, is actually that the people who are called by God's name are, are looking so terrible on the world stage that actually God is starting to look terrible. And now in the New Covenant, we're called by God's name, aren't we? When each of us are baptised, we're baptised into the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, the threefold name of God. This church is called by the name of God. This is Jesus Christ's Church, And so I wonder, if you share Daniel's concern that anything God's name is stamped upon, you care deeply about how that thing is viewed in this world, not as some kind of, you know, eager to please every person who heaps scorn on the church, but actually to to look at the things that are called by God's name, His church and His people, And to say, actually, I want these people to be living righteous lives. I want us to actually be living out the truth of God so that God's name is glorified. And Daniel uses various hooks then to plead with God. And we should do the same in our prayers. He talks about how God keeps covenant with his people. And so he's bound himself to do his covenant people good. He talks about the character of God. To you, God, you belong mercy and forgiveness. So this is who you are. You should do this for us. Or well, he talks about God's past acts. He brought the people out of the land of Egypt. We should cite precedent in prayer, uh, as Sean did before from Romans 8. We should say with Paul, God, who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You should say, look, you've done this in the past. You never change. You'll do it for us again. So do we care about God's glory? Does our heart reflect his priorities don't pray timid prayers and don't simply pray small prayers for yourself for your family but get your mind renewed in the scriptures until your thoughts and your desires reflect those of God and then pour out those desires to God in prayer and that is the prayer that God will smile upon and will answer and that is a prayer that we can pray in boldness and in faith Finally, the answer comes. The answer comes um, from verse 24. And the answer illustrates two glorious realities um, from God's side of the equation in prayer. The first reality is summed up in uh, Jesus' words on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says that your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And we see that there with Gabriel doesn't he verse 23 Gabriel says to Daniel at the beginning of your pleas for mercy a word went out. So God wasn't waiting for Daniel to say enough words to get through enough, you know, pleading and groveling. Actually as soon as God saw him kneel, as soon as he saw Daniel's heart, he gave the word and the angel went. So that as Daniel is praying this prayer, pleading, pleading, God act, God hear, God has actually already heard. And an angel is in flight toward Daniel at that very time. So God is poised to answer us before we even pray. Is that an incentive to prayer? He's poised. He's waiting. He's not waiting for you to, you know, plead long enough. He's actually ready to answer us before we're even ready to ask. The second reality it illustrates is from Ephesians 3.20 where um, Paul says that God is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask Or think far more abundantly than all we ask or think. We see that illustrated from verse 24 to 27 there. Daniel has asked for the restoration of physical Jerusalem and for blessing upon physical Israel. But what the angel gives him is actually far, far more than that. Gabriel says in verse 24, and this is a sort of summary statement of what is to come, which gets quite complex. In verse 24, he says, "...seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place." Daniel's praying for this physical Jerusalem, and Gabriel says, yes, that will happen, but also everlasting righteousness is coming in 70 weeks. And verse 25 tells us when that 70-week count begins from. It's from the edict, uh, the first edict to send uh, people back to Israel to rebuild Israel. Now we, um, we read about that edict in Ezra chapter 7. King Artaxerxes uh, sends people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and he appoints judges and magistrates for an eventual rebuilding of Jerusalem. That all happened in 458 B.C. And if you then take these 70 weeks or these literally 77s and you multiply them, so 70 times 7, you get 490. And 490 years from 458 BC is 33 AD. What Daniel is doing here is he's actually unwittingly praying for the Messiah to come. He's unwittingly praying for everlasting righteousness to come in the person of Christ. You see, this prayer doesn't just prefigure the cross in certain ways that we can pick up on now. Actually, this was part of God's plan to move redemption forward as Daniel prays his little prayer. Every personal prayer answered in our lives is a precious thing, isn't it? When we pray for a good day at work, when we pray that our snotty nose goes away, um, or when we pray for bigger things, actually real health crises in our lives, these are glorious things when God comes through. Every prayer is precious when it's answered. But prayer has a much higher purpose than that. In the book of Revelation, our prayers, the prayers of the saints, are pictured as golden bowls full of incense before God in the very host of heaven moving God's global purpose and his historic purpose forward they're actually God's appointed means of bringing his kingdom so please don't neglect this solemn duty and please don't miss out on this extraordinary joy of actually getting to on your knees at your bedside while you're mopping the floor in the car actually join God in his global purposes as we pray for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done Sean has started a prayer meeting once a month where we pray these kinds of prayers. Prayers for revival, prayers for our church, prayers for the city. But this is not a sermon aimed at a guilt trip. There are many reasons that you can't make prayer meetings. There are many prayer meetings I don't make. We have prayer before the service. We have prayer in home groups. Pray with your family. Pray by yourself. In whatever way that you do it, get on your knees and pray like Daniel prayed. On behalf of the people of God for the glory of God, taking hold of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you've given us a line of communication to your very throne. And in our world, whatever wickedness it holds, we can appeal to you as king above all kings above all governments, above all presidents and prime ministers. We praise you that prayer is not only our means of reaching out to you, but it's also something that you've, you've given us to move your purposes forward, Lord. And we see in your scriptures these many prayers that were prayed by your people, and sometimes they knew it and sometimes they didn't, but they actually caused enormous things in the ripples of time. And Lord, so I pray that you'd make us a prayerful people, please. Lord, help us as we read your scriptures to find their fuel for prayer. That every promise we come upon, we would take it to you in prayer, Lord. In fervent prayer, not just for ourselves, but for our church and for the church, Lord. And we pray that you would remake us in your image. So that we are a zealous and fervent and prayerful people. And so that we can see your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. You're probably sick of my voice. I certainly am. Um, We're going to move into communion now. And um, communion is the only reason that we can count on any of our prayers being answered. If to us belongs open shame, if human beings are as wicked as the Bible says they are... Then we have no business being before the throne of god at all do we got no business being there uh, without fear of death and yet one has already died in our place and that's what we celebrate at communion this is more than a mere remembrance um, of christ's death on the cross this is a participation in the body and blood of christ as we take the bread and the juice we are making a declaration We're declaring, firstly, that we agree wholeheartedly with the biblical diagnosis about our sin, that it is worthy of death and, more than that, of judgment from God. That in ourselves, in our natural selves, in our flesh, nothing good dwells, nothing to commend us to God. It's also, then, a declaration that we freely receive the cure that God has provided for us in the cross of Christ. As we take and we actually eat the bread and eat the juice, we say we are participating now in the body and the blood of Christ so that we are joined to that sacrifice and forgiven of all of our sins and cleansed and washed clean. And we're also affirming then that we're saved not just as individuals but into a new family. So that as we all take from the one loaf, we're affirming the fact that we are one body. And so if there is bitterness in our hearts towards someone else, if there's jealousy, if there's resentment, if there's anger, All of that, uh, Paul says, you actually need to examine yourself, you need to let that go, and you need to discern that this bread that we're taking, more than a symbol, is a participation in the body of Christ, which is the church. And therefore we're saying we are united, we are joined um, in love. So um, if you can affirm those three things, please, uh, please come up and take the bread and the juice. Let me pray firstly for that, and then uh, if I could ask some people to come up and help distribute that. Lord, we, we affirm with the Scriptures the solemn truth of our sinfulness. Lord, you tell us, by works of the Lord, no human being will be justified in your sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And as we read your law, we actually recognise, Lord, that those curses that um, were written in the law of Moses, um, we deserve them because we have not kept your laws. We have not um, maintained the standard of your righteousness, Lord. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Lord, if any of us here are not in that place of actually feeling the weight of that, I pray that by your spirit you'd make that, true to us right now more than words in the bible that seem slightly dire lord make that our true understanding of what our natural self is apart from god nothing to commend ourselves to you nothing good spirit gives life the flesh is of no value at all lord help us to feel the weight of that and then lord help us to feel an even greater sense of your mercy and your forgiveness that no work of the law will get us anywhere near close to you, but your own work by sending your son, his death on the cross, bearing our sins, bearing our iniquities. That's the only thing that reconciles us to you. Lord, help us to feel also the weight of that, that we're people cleansed by you, cleansed by our God and by no effort of our own. And Lord, bring home to us the truth that gloriously we get to share all of this with one another. We're a community sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And we thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.